Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to be here with you. We are uh, going to finish off Romans chapter 8 in our time uh, together. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read from that. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through uh, 39. Uh, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you draw near to us in this, uh, that you let us see the beauty that is in this text. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, show our hearts the reality of this. There is nothing that will separate Uh, Let us find peace in that. Let us find joy and worship and goodness in that you are a good father who promises never to let go of his children and hasn't lost one yet. Uh, May we find rest in that. We pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so finishing off Romans chapter 8 is the task this morning. Uh, This is a beautiful chapter filled with blessings uh, that we get in salvation if we are in Uh, Christ, something that might be helpful to kind of keep in mind is New Testament books of the Bible often are written as letters uh, to believers in certain cities, and once that letter is written, it's given to them, and then it's read aloud in the church, and and then it's passed on to others afterwards to glean from it. So imagine you get a letter, everyone's all gathered together, like, hey, what does it say? And, And they're not doing, well, I'll read the first paragraph, and then you go home. And I'll read the second paragraph. They're going to read the entire thing all the way through and then pass it on. Now, in our modern context, we we just don't have quite the time for that to understand everything that's going on there. So we don't just open the book, read the whole thing, and say, see you guys uh, later. Instead, we try and exegete the text, which is to open it up and verse by verse or section by section go through it to understand what it means. We're trying to pull the uh, original meaning from the original context, asking God to show how that kind of affects us here and now because the word of God affects all times and all periods of time. So I bring that up just to uh, remind us, this is kind of why we have rehashed uh, each week what has come before as far as the general themes in Romans chapter eight. So we've done a little bit more uh, recap than we normally do because we wanna understand that Romans chapter eight is a a beautiful cohesive line of thought, and we don't want to overly zoom in and miss the, the, the entire nature of chapter 8 and this great 
chapter of the Bible. So basically, we've repeated things several times in hopes that we do not miss the forest through the trees. We want to see the theme, the entire beauty. So just one more time, we'll remind ourselves of what has happened in chapter 8 before tackling this text, and then eventually next week moving on to Uh, chapter 9. So Paul opens up Romans 8 with this beautiful declaration for believers, for those who are in Christ, who are following Christ. He says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is the opening. And this is an opening that is epic. The war between God and us is over if we are in Jesus. It literally does not exist anymore. There are no arms. There is no battle. We are no longer trying to make sure that we are good with God or okay with God. We can focus on being in relationship with him and trusting him and believing and walking in the way that he has, he has called us to now instead of trying to beg him to like us because he has chosen to remember our sins no more. There's resounding freedom in this reality for believers. God will never decide to fire up wrath towards you again. God will never backtrack and, and decide to, to condemn you. You're adopted. You're sealed. You are justified. You are, as they said at the beginning of the chapter, you are sun-eyed and you are loved. This led to kind of probably the next question, well, how do we know that that is true for us personally? Because it's a grand statement. There is no condemnation. We're going, okay, but how do I know if that applies to me or not, which Paul supplied us with, with three different things in that text. Here's three ways to know if, if there is no condemnation for you. He says the Holy Spirit is battling with you against your sin, and you're actually seeing ground one. Old things that used to trip you up, you were fighting against those with the Spirit and seeing victory. The second was you now call God your Abba. You relate to him as Father instead of a distant deity who may or may not actually care for you. That was the second one, this this connection to God as Father. And the third is for a while we will share in the sufferings of Christ, which led to another natural question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus and suffer on his account in the here and now? Is the pain and the the tension and the struggle really worth it in the long run? And And Paul answers emphatically for us, yes, absolutely it's worth it. It hurts, but it's worth it because the present sufferings won't be worthy of comparison to the future glory that we have coming to us in Christ and with Christ. When Christ puts all things back together and redeems all things, even though there's pain and struggle in the here and now, it'll all be worth it. And not only will it be worth it, God is presently using our suffering. Uh, He's using the pain that we face to mold us into the image of his son. So not only is it worth it, the pain and the struggle that we go through, it's also doing something and it's not meaningless. God is using even the pain and the tears that we have and one day that will culminate in glorification. This leads us to the text today. Even with all that amazing truth that Paul wrote about, there's no condemnation, signs of it, the the fact that it's definitely worth it and creation and us will all be glorified and put back together. Even with all of that, there's the struggle to believe and rest in the blessings of your salvation that we still face quite often. Because at times down deep, we can still wrestle if there's going to be anything that will separate us from the love of God. If there's going to be some circumstance that arises, some situation that that we hit or or we come to at a crossroads, it's going to be too much to overcome and we might lose God's love. Somehow that God may decide not to love us through a a future thing that we go through. And 
Maybe we'll believe, well, maybe he won't condemn me anymore, but the struggle may be to believe, well, he, he may not condemn me, but, but he's, he's surely not going to love me forever. There's just no possible way, and this leads us into the question that we're navigating today. Will God's love for me one day dissipate and disappear? Is there a limit to his love? That's the worry down deep. Is there a limit? Is it even remotely possible that one day he will uh, simply grow tired of me and give up on me, that he'll decide that I'm not actually worth the effort to love? Sam Storms wrote this about this section. I found it very helpful. The fear that cripples and paralyzes and haunts many hearts is that no matter how good it may be to now reflect on God's love for us, it won't last. No matter how heartwarming it may be to think of God's affection and delight for me, Helder's deserving sinner that I am, there's likely coming a day when it will all end. No matter how often I remind myself that God is good and he always keeps his promises, I'm stuck with the inescapable reality of my own sinful soul and the countless times I treat God's grace and love with contempt. Surely, uh, surely, or so I say to myself, God will one day get fed up with me and pull the plug on my salvation. And honestly, I couldn't blame him if he did. This is the wrestle. Is there an exhaustion point? Is there a limit? Will I hit the end of God's love at some point? Is this the worry for our believers all times? No, no, it's definitely not. But it does come at some points, especially in moments of a weakness or frailty or difficulty or tension when circumstances feel overwhelming. But the basis of this worry often seems to hinge on the idea of a future point that you get to and it kind of acts like a straw that breaks the camel's back. At some point, it's just going to be too much and it's just going to be all over as if an unforeseen moment in the future is going to come down the road and be way too much. And when it comes, God will decide, you know what, I'm just done with this and cut his losses, or, or end up not loving us anymore. Paul says of this, when we think, well, this happened to me, he says, that will never happen. This is the beauty found in this text, the idea, will his love be separated? Will it be too much? Will at some point I, I just I be too much for him? He says, no, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. If there was a line that I wish we could just say one time and beg the Holy Spirit to do his work, it would be that. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if you are his. Now, why is that though? Why is it literally impossible? Because it's one thing to hear something, but, but if you're like me, you have an inner cynic built in. You're going, okay, I hear that, that, that nothing will separate me, but how do you know? Right? I, I need some, some proof. How do you know that it's literally impossible to be separated from the love of God if you are in Christ? And the answer begins with the very character of God and the nature of God. We must start by realizing a wonderful statement for us. God is not like us. And that is a really good thing. When the worry about being separated from his love comes up in our minds, that's probably tied to knowing how you and me are wired as human beings. And it's probably connected to experiences that you and I have had in our own life or experiences that we've seen others have in their life. It's sobering to see how fragile and fickle the love of humanity can be. Right? That, that's not something that you don't understand. It's not uncommon to see someone say, I do, 12, 24 months later or 10 years later, then they change their mind. 
We probably had close friends at some point who now, because of something that has happened, a myriad of things could have happened, a really close friend that you think, man, I'm going to be close to this person forever. We're going to be sitting on rocking chairs when we're old after we're graduating, laughing and, and, and squirting guns at kids. And like, we're just always going to be homies. And, and now you're not friends anymore. You don't, you don't see each other. You don't talk to each other. We know what it's like to love someone and then not love a person later. And even more so, we know what it's like to be loved and then not be loved later as well. This is the mark of our world, seasonal love, transactional love. I'll love you as long as the situation dictates or you are lovable to me or we have something in common. Right? We felt that before. A person, you're like, man, we're so close. And then you take that common thread away and then you're not anymore. See, the fear of not being loved by God comes from the experience of love with each other. We get that. We begin to extrapolate out that God will love us like we love others. This is why we are scared. This is why it's such a good thing that God is not like us and he does not love like us. The Bible shows us that God is the father who keeps his covenants. He's a covenantal God. The love and faithfulness in his love comes not through feelings or emotions or how valuable you are or how lovable you are. His love instead comes to us and stays with us because of his word. Because he will honor his covenant no matter what. His love is not based on any external circumstance. See, we often engage in contractual love or relationships. That's what modern marriage looks like. It's a contract that says, I will perform my part of the agreement as long as you perform your part. We, we come together to the middle. I'll bring X, Y, and Z. You bring your stuff. And as long as we're both bringing the, the arranged things together, th- then we will give love to the other person. But covenantal love is not like this. It's one-sided love. I will bring my part to the table no matter what you do. I will always, no matter what, love you. My love is contingent, not on your actions or your lovability. I will love you forever and always and through all things, no matter what, why? Because I promise to. Well, that our hearts would be recaptured by the idea of covenant. We'll stay, not because it feels good all the time, but because our word said so. This is what God does. I will love you regardless of what you do or what happens because my word is strong and I will never lie. Covenant keeping God. Second, God the Father is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Omnipotent meaning he's all powerful. Nothing's greater or stronger than than him. Omniscient, he is all knowing. Nothing is outside of the knowledge of God. Omnipresent, he can be uh, not confined to space. He can be in all places at all times. I remember when, when Judah was really young and, and laying in bed with him and trying to talk to him about God and him going, like, God is here? Yeah. And, and he's in Iowa with grandma and grandpa. Yes. Why can't I see him? Well, that's a hard one, buddy, right? All places in all times. How do these traits of God speak into the worry of losing his, his love someday? God's omniscience doesn't just mean that he knows all things factually, that he's the, the smartest around. God's omniscience means he knows everything inside of himself. He knows everything in all of his creation, and he knows everything throughout all of history. This means something. This means that there isn't going to be some future event that happens that catches him off guard and that you can do something someday that he'll sit back and go, you know, I really never thought that you would be that dumb. I'm really surprised. I never saw that coming. 
You will never get him in a gotcha situation. You can't do something that will all of a sudden unlock a, a, a heaping oceanic level of unexpected disappointment in you because you're not going to surprise him. He's outside of time. A John Piper line that, that I remember a long time ago is the beauty of God is he's not an ambulance driver. He doesn't rush onto the scene and go, what's going on here? Let me analyze it and figure out how to react. He knows ahead of time. He knows what's in our hearts and what's in our future, so we're not going to surprise and shock him and make him run away. This is a powerful reminder of about, uh, about our security in God through who he is and his character. These are broad views, but then Paul will tackle some scenarios that still may cause worry that are outside of God's character, but inside of maybe the scope of what we'll run into. What are other reasons that we or humanity can be afraid of losing God's love? The first is because we believe that our enemies are too many and too powerful. Though we are not actively in the United States under physical persecution here currently, we do need to understand that persecution is happening all over our world right now, just the same as it was in Paul's. If you need stats on this, they're easy to, to, to figure out. It's believed just in North Korea, there's 50 to 70,000 Christians in prison right now. The, the numbers of Christians dying are in the, the thousands every year. It's believed that worldwide, one in every seven Christians will be persecuted physically for their faith. We are in a blessed situation where we're not dealing with this at the moment, but it doesn't mean it's not a reality for our brothers and sisters in other places right now. You even want to look in, in Asia and China and other places and begin to dig into the reality of, of home churches and the, and the reality that in China and other places, there's places where if you are a part of a church, you can get dragged away for what you're doing. Persecution is all over. So many can feel, even if we do not feel this all the time, that their enemies are too powerful and too many. And so they are, believe that, that their enemies are committed to their undoing, to undoing what God has done, and that they don't stand much of a chance because of how many enemies that they have. They begin to think that Satan is too clever and our enemies are too abundant and their hate is so strong that, that, that I'm sure that, man, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to hold up forever. This understanding of the weight, I am surrounded by my enemies. And they would love nothing more than to crush me, to see me fail miserably. Surely at some point they're going to win and crush me. This can happen to a believer who's under strong persecution. And Paul's response to this comes in verse 31. He asks this question to those who feel that way. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He isn't suggesting that we don't actually have adversaries, though. Paul himself had dozens, if not hundreds, of adversaries. He was whipped and jailed and slandered and stoned and more. They tried at every turn to, to discredit and destroy and kill Paul. Paul's point is simply that no adversary or enemy is of any account since God is for us. If God is for us, to use the words of Romans 8:28, then we know that even in our suffering and persecution in the presence of our enemies, God will still work all things together for our ultimate spiritual good. No enemy, no matter how powerful they are in the world, can achieve what they arrogantly claim that they can. They cannot discredit God, and they can never steal you from God. Notice Paul doesn't just ask the question, who is against us? His question is, if God is for us, then who can be against us? 
If the God who, according to verse 29 and 30 of chapter 8, foreknew and predestined us, if the God who justified and glorified us, if that God is for us, if the God who can do all of that foreknow and predestine and save and gratify and glorify and justify, if the God who has all of that in his, in his abilities, who can be against us? Who precisely is this God that Paul is talking to us about? Let's look at scripture, Psalms 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Daniel chapter 4, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, uh, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Church, whether it be suffering or persecution or just plain hardship, we need to hear the words the psalmist cried out, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Even in the face of your enemies in dark days and valleys and trials, who shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of life. Whom shall I be afraid of? Paul is by no means minimizing our suffering. He is, however, reminding us of who our Abba is. Yeah, it hurts. Remember who your daddy is. Remember his power. Remember, remember, no one can stop him. No one can stay his hand. He will do as he chooses. Yes, it's difficult. No one will beat up your dad, though. Let's think again. Why would Paul ask this rhetorical question with us? Why would he, why would he ask this? Well, he's confronting our fear, the collective power and forces against us. Paul knew that there would always be a person or people or a group out there that would ridicule and hostility and reject Christians, and we'd feel maybe unable to face it. Paul knows how paralyzing such a fear can be to face a mob who is against you. So he calls us to think about how strong and weighty all of our enemies may be, and compare that on a balance with God, right? So, so a scale, he's saying, okay, your enemies, let's look, let's look at them, let's look at their number, let's look at their power, put them on one side of a scale, and they're, when they're going down, you're like, man, that, that's pretty heavy, that's pretty strong. Okay, oh, all right, all right. Now let's put God on the other. He's saying they're, they're nothing compared to your father. He's calling us to see who is greater and leading us to see that the one that we serve is greater than the one in the world. Even when the world looks like it will swallow us up and overtake us because of persecution, saying your father is bigger. Your father is stronger. Now maybe for, for us, you don't have enemies. And maybe you just live scared to death that you might actually make one though. I would say that this is much more plausible for us in the West. You don't have any but you feel like you're walking on eggshells just to make sure that you don't make one. And because of this, you don't speak much about God. You don't share Jesus very much. You don't speak into cultural issues. You do not kind of put yourself into the fray. You just stay in your lane and keep your head down. 
Paul would say the same to you. Hey, see who your dad is. And don't let the fear of the world and the fear of your enemies cover up the light of the world that you're meant to be. Yes, we can have enemies, and yes, they can be scary. They're nothing compared to your father. We're called again to be salt and light. Do not let them smother your light. The second, the second way that we may believe that we may be separated from the love of God, my needs are just too many. This fear believes that your needs are so deep and so many that God will surely get tired of meeting your needs and meeting you in your weakness and that he'll give up on you. I mean, think about how exhausting our needs must be. Right? I have three boys asking me things. It drives me nuts sometimes. And Jesus has many, 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 many more. From all of them, think of it. God, God, can you give me more faith so I can believe that you'll finish what you started? God, can you give me more strength to fight temptations that I should be on, be beyond? God, can you give me wisdom over how to deal with that situation at work? God, can you give me joy in Jesus so I don't find my satisfaction other places? God, will you give me patience because that one brother in the faith, like I, I'm about to go nuts. God, can you give me favor with my job? Can you give me favor with this? God, can you strengthen this? God, can you fix this? God, will you make sure that Aunt Betty's cat gets better soon? Our needs are so many. So many. I wonder if that's the reason that some of you have stopped praying is because you believe that your needs are too many. We begin to believe that he's going to start resenting us instead of loving us if we keep bringing our needs to him. Surely, he'll not meet all of my needs. And at some point, man, I might shipwreck my faith. Paul asks in verse 32, this question to that mindset, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's saying, if God would go as far as to give his son to save us, if he, would, if he would go that far, why in the world would he not meet our needs afterwards? Why would he say, wow, your, your 38th request for more faith is just too much. I gave you my son. That's just too much. Your request for wisdom, it's just too, I'm, I'm done with you. I can't believe how needy you are, how ungrateful you are. Can't you just be happy for what I gave you? Why do you ask so much? Ah, this is a classic greatest to least argument that Paul is making for us. If God saw fit to meet your greatest need in Jesus, if he took care of that, if he took care of your justification and your pardon and your redemption, if that greatest need cost more than anything else imaginable to meet, he met your greatest need at the highest cost possible. If he would do all of that, paying the ultimate cost to save you, why in the world would you think he wouldn't meet your lesser need? Your other needs are a cakewalk compared to the blood of his son. Why would he do that? Again, reminding us that God is outside of time. He knew what you were going to ask for as well. Beyond that, not just if your lesser needs are a cakewalk, remember again what we learned at the front side of chapter 8. He is not an angry deity that you're trying to navigate. He's your father. 
Right? He is now your Abba. He wants you to bring your needs to him, to come and ask for help. Yes, our needs are many, but the beauty is his mercy and kindness are much, much more. So even in all of our needs, he won't stop loving us. And if we worry that there is a need that won't be met and it will cause us just to fall away, we need to remember what we find at the beginning of this section today. God is for us and not against us. There can be this fundamental belief that you're always worrying for the, for the hammer to fall, for, 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 some, for some difficulty to come. God is not looking to destroy you at every pass. He did all of this to love you. Your lesser needs, he will still help meet. He's for you and not against you. Now, we need to backtrack and understand he is not always for our idea of our best life now, but he is actually for us. So come with your needs to him and know that he will not withhold anything that you truly need. You have a good father. He loves you and he cares for you. The third, the third way that we believe that we may be separated from the love of God is just my sins are simply too many. We've heard Paul say that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that God has forgiven us and will not remember our sins, but we can still begin to think, yeah, I've heard that, but still, like, my sins are too many. They're too numerous. They're too great. They're too severe. They're, they're too regular. They have to be too much. Surely my sins, my remaining struggle will separate me from God's love. At some point, I have to exhaust the limits of it, even though I'm trying. At some point, surely it's going to be too much. Paul asks this question when that weighs on your heart. He asks, who should bring a charge against God's elect? Notice his angle. Okay, you're worried about condemnation and charges again, about exhaustion of grace, but who's going to come in with a charge against God's elect? He's asking, who is there to condemn you? If God the Father omnipotent, all-powerful, there is no greater source of power. If that God has justified you and declares you as just, who can come and condemn you? If God has forgiven you, if the, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you, then what other authority can bring charges against you? Sure, Satan can try and bring bogus charges and accusations, but Who's left to declare you guilty if God has declared you innocent? Who can overrule the declaration of God the Father over you? There's no higher court. There's no system of appeals. There's no last-minute evidence that's going to get in and aha you. If God has justified you, then you are just and it is finished. No one will overrule the Father. Remember who your Father is. Again, this forgets that God is the God of covenantal love and promise. God doesn't stay in love with us based upon how lovable we present ourselves in a given moment. God has promised to forgive those in Christ and be their God eternally. That promise won't and can't be broken no matter how rough we are in a given season. Is this a hyper-grace sermon? No, no, no. It's just margin for when you fall on your face. Further, remember the cost God paid. The text says, and we may skim right by it without thinking very much about it, it says God did not spare his son. Those words are specific and they're important to us. 
They're very intentional. We've seen judges and authorities spare people from full penalties before. Right? We've seen plea deals. We've seen slaps on the, the wrist. We've seen reduced sentences. We've seen people pay far less penalties than they should have for what they have done. But Paul is calling us to remember God did not do that with his own son. He did not pull the punch. He didn't go easy on him. He didn't make him only pay half of the bill. He didn't at the last minute kind of remove the severity of wrath off of him thinking, no, it's just going to be too much. No, the full cup of the wrath of God was emptied on Jesus for our sin. That's the unthinkable part of the gospel. Jesus paid it all, the full cup, the full debt. He paid the debt he did not owe in full and not in part. See, our hearts may believe he paid part in full, and it's our job to pay the rest. That's not what the word says. God did not spare his son. The full wrath was poured out. Because of that, there's no condemnation left for you. Why? Jesus paid it all. When you worry that he's going to pick back up some sort of grievance, you don't understand that the condemnation can't be placed back on you because the sin is fully paid for. God knew before you were even going to do it in the past, present, and future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Not only did he do that, now he is raised. Guys, see the exhaustive nature of this. Your debt is paid in full. He did not spare anything. Nothing will rip you away from the love of God. And then it says, he is now raised and alive and well and at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is there interceding for us, even in our weakness. That means every time an accusation is brought against you from any person, from an enemy, from Satan, when an accusation is brought from your own heart against yourself, right? Because who condemns us more than we do? Jesus turns to the Father and says, I was reckoned guilty for that. But Jesus doesn't have to turn to the Father and be like, it's a lie. It, it may be true, it may not. He goes, no, no, no. Even in the worst case scenario, when an accusation is brought, Jesus goes, yes, it's true, but I died for it. I, I paid for that. God, you're... Your justice is satisfied for that. They are free. The bill is paid. The sun stands over you interceding. Even if your sins are many, his mercy is more. They will never and can never separate you from God's love. Oh, that we believe that. The debt is paid. Condemnation is God. He is a good father who promises never to leave you. And Jesus and the spirit are both praying with you and for you. Verse 35, we'll read the tail end of that text. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Because these are rhetorical. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. Notice 38 doesn't say, I'm pretty sure. I think. For I'm fairly confident. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Right? That's the whole timeline of all creation nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. That's pretty exhaustive. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul wraps up Romans by saying, no matter what comes your way, fear of your enemies, fear of your needs, fear of your sin, no matter what comes, tribulation, distress, persecution, no matter the enemy, no matter the wave, no matter the difficulty, nakedness, danger, sword, notice these are things that Jesus had to go through. No matter how dark and terrible it could possibly get, none of that can separate you from the love of God. It can't steal you from the Father. Then watch how Paul kind of switches and focuses on kind of larger themes. Can death separate you? This was a reality in the early church. There was fear in in some of the people that that if they died before the returning Christ, they didn't kind of understand some things. They believe, well, if death came, that that, that, that it was too late for them. He says, no, 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 death won't separate you from your father. Can anything in life? No. Can angels separate you? No. Things you're facing now or or things that are still going to come? No. Heights? Depths? Anything in all creation? No. None of that can separate you. You will never be separated from the love of your father. Your enemies are no threat. Your needs are not a challenge to him. And your weakness will not put a dent in the love of God for you. Notice that's why he says, in this, that's why you're more than a conqueror. What can touch the love of God over you? What can defeat you? Can things make you hurt? Absolutely. But ultimately and eternally, what can defeat you? Your greatest need in redemption is met and the greatest gift that you could be given is the love of God is given to you. It says nothing can separate that. So walk forward in faith and hope knowing that you are loved. Church, God hasn't just pardoned his children. He loves them. And he most definitely will ferociously hold on to his children. You're safe in Christ. There's nothing that will change that. God will not lose a single child. See, I wonder if we ask the question from the wrong, wrong angle. Can I lose my salvation? Well, can something rip you out of the hands of God, I think is a better question. And Paul's saying, no, nothing will separate you from the love of God. No one can rip you away. No one can take you from him. Nothing will change that. And not only will nothing rip you out of the love of God, Paul says, see that he's for you and not against you. And Jesus is even praying for you and interceding in the moments of your weakness. This is the beauty that we find. There's no condemnation. We have a good father that we can relate to. We can come and worship. We have a day of glory that we look ahead to. We understand that we're safe and secure and nothing will pull us away. The hope is that we will see that and that we'll worship in light of that and the Holy Spirit will let us feel the love of God. Let us feel the way that you love us. Let us feel the unending nature of your love and see the beauty that you are not like us. That's the hope in this. Man, you guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. We've got, I think, three songs to close in. And anyone can take uh, if your faith is in Jesus. But 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as you take today,
You get to proclaim the reality of what Jesus has done for you. You get to proclaim the reality his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you to bring you into and adopt you into the family of God and nothing will ever pull you away from that. So my hope for you is as you take, you would be strengthened to that. You have a good father who will never let you go. He loves you and he is strong and he is kind and he has done everything that you need and met your greatest need in Jesus. My hope is that your heart would be strengthened in that and that you would sing out and rejoice through that. Would you stand with me? Let's pray before we get into song.